you'd like to turn, I'll be in Luke chapter 5 today. Luke chapter 5. We'll read the first 11 verses. Luke chapter 5 reads as follows. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gernaset, which is Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little further from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that, when, that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Now, this is a beautiful story in and of itself. But as I have said, hopefully many times that you have begun to look for these things yourself, these don't happen in isolation. There are other events that are going on during this time period. It's often important to read before and after to understand some context of what's going on. So just for example, if you go back into Luke chapter 3, we see the story of John the Baptist who's preparing the way for Christ to come and Christ's baptism. And then we see after that that he is led off into temptation for 40 days and 40 nights. And then upon returning from this, he begins his ministry. In fact, Luke 4, beginning with verse 14, it says, And Jesus returned, this is from the temptation, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out all through the surrounding country. I would contend that it is that power of Spirit that Jesus returned from. That is the reason that the report went out all the country. We see that he goes to the temple. He's handed the scroll that he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and specifically to go with what I just said, he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, and has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And so Christ is proclaiming who he is, that he is God, and what he has been sent here to do. And then he goes on and he does Uh, several miracles. He begins to heal and to teach. And we see this in chapter 4. And then we do see a a break. It says, on one occasion when we begin chapter 5. So there is some period of time that took place between the end of chapter 4 
in the beginning of chapter 5. And so looking at the first few verses of chapter 5, now that we have that context, we see that on one occasion, the crowd was pressing in on him. They were desperate, you could say, to hear the very word of God, and they were trying everything they could to get to him, pressing in on him to the point that he had to go somewhere else so that all could see and to hear what it was that he was sharing. They desired to hear the very word of God. And I believe they perceived correctly the power of the spirit of God who was resting on Jesus and his words. That is very vital to what we are talking about today. Anyone can stand and speak for the most part. But when the spirit of God rests on what they say, there is power and people press into and want to hear the truth. And so Christ, realizing that many were likely unable to hear him and very likely unable to see him, he pressed into service a nearby boat. And I've always liked this part. You notice, now we don't have the complete uh, story here in Scripture. It's not to say the Scripture's wrong, but to say there were other things that were spoken that we don't always have recorded. But what we do have recorded is that he got into the boat and then asked to go out a little ways into the water. He didn't ask to get in first. And I've always thought that was kind of interesting. Sometimes I think in our own life, we're a little put off because Christ will involve himself in our lives before we ask or give permission. You ever experienced that? That's not to say he's always a gentleman, though. He always ask for permission. It's a collaboration, if you remember that sermon from some time ago. He wants to work with us. He's not going to force his way, but sometimes he gets into our lives before we're quite ready to ask him in and maybe even to do a play on words rocks the boat a little bit. But he does this to be seen and to be heard. It creates a natural amphitheater, not very far from the shore. He would be able to be heard and to be seen by all those who are there. Because Christ wants everyone who wants to hear and see him to experience it. And for those who are seeking after Christ, this is an important lesson. Whether you are seeking salvation or whether you have been saved and need to be closer to him, he is wanting you to see and to hear him, and he will do what is necessary for that to happen. Now, I want to take just a detour for just a minute and talk about the four people who are mentioned here in the Scripture. I want to talk about Simon Peter. Simon, who later becomes Peter, Andrew, James, and John. These are four of the disciples. And again, when we understand the context and look at all the scriptures together, what we realize is this is not the first occasion that they've encountered Jesus. I think even I thought this for some time, that he just randomly walked up to a bunch of fishermen and said, let me in your boat. But in fact, that's not the case. If you turn to John chapter 1, we see an example of this. Let me read a few verses. John chapter 1. Verse 35. The setting here is John the Baptist who was baptizing at the river. 
And John 1.35 says this, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, John's disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. Catch that, that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Caiaphas, which means Peter. And so we see that even before this great catch of fish, even before this sermon out on the lake, these men had met and been involved with Jesus. But it was only temporary. It was for that day. They left. They were disciples of John the Baptist, following after him, seeking the truth. And when the Messiah came, they left him and began to follow Jesus, at least for that day. Now, if you continue reading in John... Verse 43 says, the next day, so this is one day later, and then skip a few verses into chapter 2. On the third day, so three days after this, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so we see that there are some who are following after Jesus before this event occurs. I flip back to to Luke, and I'll give you just one more example from this. If you go back up into chapter 4, beginning with verse 38, hang with me, this will all come together. Luke 4, verse 38, and it says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Again, this is before he got into his boat, after he'd already been with him for some time. So he goes to Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So understand that these men had met and experienced Jesus Christ, knew who he was, admitted that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of all mankind, and at least to some degree were hanging out with him some of the time. Whether they went to his house for a night, or they went to a wedding with him, or they took him to see the mother-in-law, etc. They were involved with him. And so I don't think it was any coincidence that Jesus goes to the seaside of Galilee and finds those who he had already met and climbs into one of their boats. It doesn't seem to be a coincidence. Now, I want to point out, these disciples are not what we think of yet. When we think about the disciples, we think about the 12 that God himself chose, who lived with, who followed every day Jesus Christ. To this point, it seems like Peter and the others knew who Jesus was, interacted with him, but were still living their regular lives. They were still going fishing because they had to. 
They were still going out and doing the things that they were supposed to do for now. So they knew each other. Jesus gets into the boat, finishes his sermon, which we don't have recorded. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. And these are professional fishermen. No, their father was, probably their father's father. They knew fishing. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Jesus, but we know that his dad was not a fisherman. Maybe he knew a little bit about fishing. Maybe he didn't. So they had to trust that he was right and knew more than they knew. That's really hard sometimes, isn't it? How many times in our lives have we gone into a situation and I might even ask the Lord for help and he tells me what to do. He gives me guidance and I'm like, actually, I think I know better than you do. Now we can kind of chuckle and smile at that because we see how silly it is, but it doesn't change the fact that we do it all the time, don't we? What if Peter had said to him, Jesus, you're mistaken. Have you ever said that? After fishing all night, they caught nothing. In fact, they were sitting on the shore cleaning their nets. They'd been up all night long. Their nets were clean. Their boat was probably clean. They're going to go catch a nap before they start again. I'm just adding part of that here, but you get the idea. They stay up and listen to a sermon that lasts who knows how long, right? As long as some of you all might think that I preach, I guarantee you it's nothing compared to what went on before. We know at least Paul would preach so long people would fall asleep and fall out of windows and things. So I'm sure Jesus had some, some, some time there. So they were up all night, didn't catch a thing, which means they're not going to have any food or money. This isn't a, well, I miss a day of work and I still have money for the next day. Very likely this society, they were living from day to day to day. When you miss a day of fishing, that's a serious problem. And Jesus says, let's go out into the deep. And let your nets down again. Simon answered, Master, we told all night, took nothing. But, or in some translations, nevertheless, one of my favorite words, at your word, I will let down the nets. Even when it doesn't seem to make sense, when our Lord and Savior tells us to do something, we should what? Obey. We should do it. There should be no question. Even if we do in our minds a little bit, that's okay. God knows we need to go ahead and obey and do exactly what he tells us to do, whether it seems to make any sense or not, whether we think we know better or not, whether for a fact we do know better or not, it doesn't matter. We are to be obedient to what Christ tells us to do. And he was nevertheless at your word. Now, I've mentioned this over and over again, and I don't know why I keep mentioning it, but it's a lesson I learned years ago when I was struggling with my call to preach. And I've told you, I fell to my knees, and I was one day just kind of angry. And I told God as much, <laughs> very plainly. But you know what? He already knew how I felt. 
This idea that I'm going to hold something back and hide my true intents or hide my true feelings or emotions or thoughts from God, he knows them anyway because he is God. I'm not hiding a thing from him. And so many times we hold everything in and think, well, if I don't tell God I'm angry at him, maybe he won't know. (laughs) Peter tells him, uh, we've been fishing all night, but okay. He was honest with God. Just be honest with him. He didn't hold it against him, did he? He didn't hold it against him. Nevertheless, at your word. Into the deep. We'll come back to that in a minute, but hold, hold that thought. They went into the deep. So they go, they let their nets down. In verse 6, it said, When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. That's impressive, isn't it? It's hard to break a net. That's the point. But even more impressive than this, it says, um, They signaled to their partners and their other boats to come and help. And they filled both boats to the point they both began to sink. Now, how many fish is that? A lot. That's, that's, that's what I was like, a lot. I have no idea. It is a lot of fish, more than these men have probably ever seen. Trying to sink a boat by filling it with fish is really amazing. It is, in fact, a what? A miracle, right? Again, these experienced fishermen had never seen anything like this in their life. So God performed a miracle in their presence in front of them, And Peter's right response was to do what? To fall to his knees and say, I am unworthy, leave. That may seem kind of strange. Before I go to that, let me explain. Put this again into our context today. Filling two boats with fish after catching nothing is a big deal. This was a a windfall catch. I finally have enough to catch up. Maybe they could now afford to get better nets. Maybe they could get a better boat. Maybe they could hire some more staff to help them fish. Maybe they could incorporate and start a second boating business on a different end of the lake. Maybe they could build themselves a bigger house. It's kind of like winning the lottery. That's not even close to what happens. God gives them the most unbelievable physical blessing they've ever seen in their lives. And here in a few verses, what do they do? They leave it on the shore and walk away. Simon Peter says, I'm a sinful man. And he asks Christ to leave. Andrew, James, and John agree. They're surprised by this. But Christ reassures them and says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, this is like a church phrase, isn't it? We may have heard this. We have little Bible school songs about it. We'll probably sing some here in a few weeks. Right? Fishers of men. But how strange is that? Who fishes for a man? What is he talking about? Sometimes we lose the power of this because we've become so familiar with it. He assures them, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And they left everything and followed him. 
not just for the day now. You see, this is the changing point. They knew of him. They'd experienced him. They'd been around him. They went to a wedding with him. Mother-in-law was healed. They'd seen some things that he'd done. They'd listened to his sermons. They were willing to go when they weren't working to follow him. Now he commands complete, unadulterated attention. Follow me. And we know that that meant following for the next three years of their lives. What did they leave behind? Well, one, they left their dad sitting in a boat. You leave, read the other translation, or the other chapter. That's what it says. They left their father sitting in the boat. And they walked away from the biggest catch of their lives. They left their nets and their boats, the tools, the only way they could make a living, the only way they could feed their family. They were willing to what? Give it up. They left what they knew. They left everything. Why? Because they had been in the deep with Jesus. And they would never be the same. They had been in the deep of the water with Jesus. And they would never be the same. There is nothing different today. Jesus is still looking for those who are willing to go into the deep. Those who will obey him. Who will put out into the deep. Who will leave everything behind. And who will follow him. Because the deep waters are where the fish are. And too many of us are playing in the shallows. We're walking around. We're willing to get our ankles deep. We might even wade out a little bit. But when it starts getting deep, when it starts getting hard, we go back to the shore and we pull away because we're not willing to go into the deep with Jesus to fully trust him for what he tells us to do and then to follow through with it after he changes our lives. So the question is, what if we took the scripture seriously? What if we really, really believed what was in here and did what was in here? Look around at many of our churches today. Look what we've made Christianity. We've made it really easy, haven't we? Oh, we have, you know, half a dozen services. Just pick one. We've made it really fun. Light shows and smoke. Guitars, not that I'm against guitars, drums, professional singers, instruments, voice effects. They've also made it really hip. A lot of preachers who, I don't know, somehow preaching barefoot or with sandals is better, I guess. Tight leg jeans, trying to fit in with the culture. We've made it very non-committal. Nah, membership, whatever. Just come, go here for a few months and go visit over here. That's okay. Just as long as you every once in a while come. We just want you to come. We've also made it very non-confrontational. Listen. These four men were getting ready to have the best life now. But that meant they left everything that they knew. And the number of churches who talk about how you can have prosperity, you can have it all. You can have the best thing in your life and sprinkle a little Jesus in on the side. It's wrong. It's false doctrine. It's heresy. 
Jesus demands all that we are. That is what the scripture tells us. That is what the men and the women who lived the Bible, who lived with him, show us. And that is what he commands as all of us. He's not going to let us just play in the shallow end and just sprinkle in a little bit of him every once in a while. It doesn't work that way. Churches today teach shallow, trivial knowledge. They don't truly study the scriptures like we're supposed to. And this may be why many of our churches are dying today. I shared with you last Sunday night a recent survey that asked a few key doctrinal questions and then asked a few key questions about how they live those doctrinal questions. And they found that a total of 6% of people in this country could answer some foundational doctrinal questions correct and live like they believed it. 6%. That's it. Remember, people press in to hear and to see the power of the Spirit. That's where it's at. It's not in easy. It's not in fun. It's not in non-confrontational. It's not in trivial. It's not in surface-level knowledge. It's in the Spirit of God. And this only comes from those who've been in the deep. Let me give you just another quick example in case you're not following along very closely. What's the difference between a church, even our church, and a country club? Bear with me for a minute. You're supposed to join a country club. There's membership. Can't just show up. I mean, you kind of can. You can come as a guest, but you're supposed to join. You go there to do what? To fellowship with other people. You eat food there. You give money, either monthly, quarterly, or annually. You join to get the benefits. It's even a la carte, if you will. You can join and get the meal plan. You can join and get the golf. Or you can join and get the pool. Different levels. There's often a certain dress code. And there's even traditions. But you know, the problem is even country clubs are dying too. People aren't joining like they used to. And so in response, just like many of our churches, many country clubs, if you will, and this isn't a sermon about country clubs, I'll get off that in just a second, but I want you to understand, many of our churches and our country clubs have watered everything down just to try and attract more people. And the result is it isn't working. The dress code at a country club isn't near what it used to be, nor is the membership requirements. It used to be hard. You had to kind of know somebody to get in. Most of them kind of waive that privilege now. Used to have to pay so much. Now there's all these different packages, so on and so on and so forth. And we see the comparison. Let me talk just for a minute about science. Boy, I'm really nervous to throw out the quote-unquote science term anymore because if anything has shown us, we certainly can't follow the science anymore. Do you know what people want and what people find compelling Research has shown us two things, commitment and a lot to know. That's what we find rewarding as individuals. And I think this is a reflection of how God made us. We want to be committed to something, and we want something that we can know a lot about. If you think about our societal 
things in life that are thriving and those that are not, you see this difference. I recently read a major school district said, well, even those all, all those who failed last year, we're going to pass them anyway. What does that tell you? That there's apparently nothing to know and that there's no commitment to go either to a school, right? So who cares? We do the same with our churches sometimes too. Well, just come every once in a while. There's no real commitment. We don't want, no, there's no commitment. And we'll just teach you surface level. As long as you're here, you'll be happy. It'll be great. It'll be good. What people really want is to be committed to something and to be able to know a lot about whatever it is. Now, let's talk about one of my most unfavorite things, sports, for just a minute. Think about the difference. When you join a sports team, especially a competitive sports team, you had better be there or what, or you're off. You had better practice or you're off. And there is a lot to know. I don't know a thing about any sports hardly at all, but I know enough to know that like, you got to know like batting averages and different kicks and different maneuvers. I tried playing golf for a little bit, even took lessons and I had to show up every time. There was a commitment that was required. It also cost me something to pay for the lessons. And this person taught me how to swing, how to hold, where to put my foot, gave me a book to read all about it. And there are endless books on golf. I watched it on TV. You understand there was a commitment to something and there was a never ending amount of knowledge to it. You could always get better at it. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is the same way. It requires some type of commitment to follow after him. And there is knowledge you will never, ever, ever end in here. There is always something to learn, always something to grow, always something to be better at. And yet, what are we selling to the world today? Oh, it's easy. Just come every once in a while. Join when you want to. Give a little money if you want to. Come. It'll be fine. We'll all be happy. No one wants that. People think that they want it, but no one actually does. If we're going to sell or convince or get people committed to Christ, we must do it in the power of the Spirit. We must do it in committed ways as these disciples were committed. And we must do it with a lot of knowledge. We need to expand commitment and knowledge, not the other way. So here's my final notes. Real quickly, before I do that, what I want to say, what I'm not saying is you have to be here every so many Sundays and we're going to kick you out. That's not what I'm saying. I just want to make sure nobody walks away thinking, well, I wasn't here last week. So, <laughs> The point is, are you committed to your faith? To attend, to come, to call, to reach out to your brothers and sisters? Are you committed in prayer? Are you committed to learn and to grow? Are you going out into the deep or are you simply playing at the water's edge? Do you even know if the Lord is telling you to go out into the deep? Or are we so busy with our own lives fishing we wouldn't know it if he called us? There's two applications to this. The first is for salvation. I want to read you a quote from Matthew Henry, and I'll interpret it here in just a minute, but try and listen closely. It's difficult to understand. Those who Christ designs to admit to the most intimate acquaintances with him, he first makes sensible that they deserve to be set at the greatest distance from him. Let me give you my interpretation of that. 
you will never, ever be saved until you realize how unworthy you are of it. See, that's what Peter realized. Peter finally saw God and he fell to his knees and said, just leave me alone. I am unworthy of you. And until you have done that in your life, until you have experienced that brokenness and you fall to your knees, whether physically or metaphorically, and say, God, who am I? I am a sinner. I am worthless. And you are holy. I cannot be around you. You never start on the journey. There must be a point in your life when you experience that, that you fall to your knees saying, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. If you never are burdened by your sin, if you never admit your sin to him, then we are simply playing games in the shallows. It all starts with the realization of who I am in compared to a great, powerful, almighty God who made me. And until I understand that, I'm just hanging out, passing time. I may think I'm doing a lot, but the reality is I'm not. I'm still working my job and kind of following on the side. I still show up. I still do some things. And that's okay. My prayer, and many people here's prayer, is that you will experience that for yourself. That at some point, God's call in your life will be so unmistakable that you will fall to your knees and say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Because at some point, when you truly mean it, God will say, do not be afraid. And when that peace that the Bible tells us passes all understanding, enters your heart and your mind and your life, you will know what it means to be with the Lord. You will understand your position between you and Him. It all starts with that realization of who you are and who He is. Now, the second part of this story that we must understand is this process we call sanctification. This idea that after we have experienced that, after that we have been saved, we need to grow in Him. We need to go into the deep, if you will, like these men. I wrote down here, this isn't my own, so these men who were previously acquainted with Christ now were affected by Him. They knew who he was. They'd spent the night at his house, wherever that was. He'd been to their mother-in-law's house, to his house. They'd been to a wedding together. They, they knew Jesus. They were acquainted with him. But at some point, they were affected by him and did what? Left everything that they owned and followed after him. And so my question to you is, if you know that you've been saved, are you merely acquainted with him or have you truly been affected by him and are growing closer to him? Have you obeyed? Have you gone into the deep? Have you left everything to follow? Luke 14.33 says, So therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily to follow me. Let me just pause there. That wasn't like a symbol of anything positive back then. It meant exactly what it sounds like, to crucify yourself. What on earth is Jesus asking us to do? 
to give everything that we think we understand, our fishing equipment, the biggest catch of our lives, our family, our boat, our job, and to follow him. And if he is calling you to specifically do that, then you ought to do that. Matthew 6, But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Your best life now might be giving up whatever you think is your best life. But you won't hear that in most churches today. Definitely not that one in Texas. We are called to go into the deep. And until we're willing to obey, to push out from the land, and to let Jesus take us to the deep places, to be obedient to what he has us to do, and to experience what he wants us to experience, we're just sitting there. Now, we have to be really careful. I want to close with this. I hadn't hadn't planned on it. See if I can find it. In between the time when Jesus came back, he told them to go to Galilee and wait for him. And he didn't show up right away. Days they waited. And Peter, of all people, stands up among them and says, I'm going fishing. And he takes a bunch of disciples with him. And they go back to what they knew before. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having your boat start to sink? To seeing all that you see, to have experienced the resurrection of Christ and being told to go wait for him to come back and then just to get up one day and decide, I'm just going to go fishing again. Back to the life that I knew before. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Jesus shows up again and gives them another counterintuitive order. Cast your nets on the other side. And they couldn't hardly haul it in because there were so many fish. And Peter dives off the boat. He swims for everything he has back to the shore to get to Jesus. And he was so excited when the boat finally arrives with all the fish that the net they couldn't pull inside, he just manhandles onto the beach. Brothers and sisters, there is redemption when we miss the mark. If he is calling you back into the deep, then go. He wants you back. It's not a one-time and done type situation. He will come back for you continuously. If Peter, having experienced everything that he did, can miss the mark at the end and go back fishing, God came back again. He said, no, no, this way. Peter learned his lesson that time. And it cost him everything, including his life. But I'm glad it did because God used them to give us this. How much more do we owe God 
and everything that we have. Will you go into the deep? Either to find the salvation that you so desperately need or to find the encouragement to do the things that you need to do. As we reflect on this, let's have a song, a hymn, a time of invitation. You can come if you need to here to pray, to seek the Lord. You can pray at your seat. But let us reflect on what this means. Ask yourselves, are you simply waiting in the shoreline or are you willing to go into the deep? Talk to him. Ask him to reveal his power to you. Be willing to see him for who he is. Be willing to see yourself for who you are. And once you have accomplished that, be willing to follow him even in the hard times. Be willing to give up the things you love and hold so dear to follow after him because it is the right thing to do, because it is what he demands, and because it is what he deserves. Will we follow him into the deep? Or will we simply play, air quote, Christian? Just like we're joining a country club. Or will we get serious? Will we commit? And will we realize there's a lot to learn and a lot to grow? Brothers. Okay.